Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comments section of this Q&A video. Um, I wanted to take a moment just to let everybody know that there is quite a bit in the description section of every one of my videos. There's links to my Critical Clips channel, my podcast, the ways to support the channel, ways to contact me. It's all in there in every video I produce. And so I wanted to make sure you all know that, look to there uh, for those resources. Because I get asked, uh, you know, hey, where's your email address to ask you questions? Where's that Critical Clips channel? What's your podcast? It's all there. (laughs) So do take a look at the description section of my videos. I make sure that stuff gets in there. I also wanted to thank everybody who has been showing me some amazing levels of support and assistance lately on social media and otherwise. I, um, you know, sometimes you just have those lulls. You have those times where you're producing and producing and then you kind of look and go, man, does anybody really care what I'm doing? Does this even matter? And, um, of course it does. And of course you do. And you invite me into your home every week. And I honestly, this space and doing this work and talking to you guys via this camera and microphone is the most fun I get to have. (laughs) So I love doing this. And, um, you've seen maybe lately that I've been doing some live shows, did a bonus Q and a show last week, uh, live in the middle of the week, we did a two hour show Never done it. Never done it for that long. A lot of fun. Really enjoying this, and I got a lot more coming. And uh, you'll see another Q and A live this next Thanksgiving week. Uh, this this week, I'm not sure if I'm going to do it Tuesday or Wednesday yet. We'll see. So that all being said, just wanted to kind of put all that out there. Acknowledge you guys for the wonderful support that you guys give me. I just really, really appreciate it. Um, And of course, I will ask as part of that to um, now my ask is if you could uh, share, like, get this information out there and around. I want to grow my channel and I will need your help to do it. There is no better way of growing a channel than word of mouth. It's always been that way and it always will be. All right, folks, let's get on with your questions. Kevin McIntyre. After seeing how Scientology is a deceptive, evil organization and accepting that all of us are imperfect, me included, the question that comes to mind is how do you deal with the feelings of guilt? I can only imagine it must be there for all the efforts you made to attract people in, keep people in, etc. It must be a huge burden, which I hope you are relieved of by whatever method you choose. There's little doubt that you were a victim, not a perpetrator, but in the course of your service, you caused the chain of perpetration to continue. Any thoughts on this? Hey, Kevin, thank you for this. And this is a question that I take up, uh, you know, repetitively on purpose. People ask, have been asking me about this for years now, and I always enjoy revisiting it and answering it sort of for freshly. Uh, and seeing how my answers change and evolve and progress as I have changed and evolved and progressed and hopefully not devolved, <laughs> I think it's been a forward progression and I feel much better about myself now than I certainly than I did years ago and, and I'm certainly, certainly in a far better headspace now, a more calm and understanding and educated headspace 
than I was 10 years ago when I got out of Scientology. So lots and lots of growth and change. And one of the things that has been very, very apparent and very, very important um, to address over the years has been this point of accountability, responsibility, and guilt. How do people who were in a destructive cult situation deal with that? How do I deal with that? Well, I'll talk about me. And along the way, maybe I'll give some uh, advice or some some ideas here that might help other people as well. That's really, at the end of the day, all, the, all that I can do here on this channel. Um, so responsibility. I thought maybe a little word clearing might be in order since we're not going to use L. Ron Hubbard's definition of responsibility. Uh, which is to be at knowing and total, you know, and willing cause over all things, uh, time, place, form, or uh, matter, energy, space, and time, rather. Um, you know, that was Hubbard's thing, was I'm in the driver's seat, I'm the one causing every element of my life, and this is very magical thinking, and actually goes back to Hubbard's roots in the occult. And that's not the kind of responsibility we want to talk about here today. What we want to talk about is ability to respond. Where does you know, responsibility, response, ability, able to respond, able to answer for, able to acknowledge um, the state or fact of being accountable or to blame for something. Now, that's where the trick comes in because the word blame is a heavy trigger loaded word for a lot of people. You know, if you are to blame, then that means you're going to get in an awful lot of trouble for what you did. And, you know, nobody wants that. Nobody wants to get in all kinds of trouble uh, for anything. Who wants to experience that? Who wants to be punished? Who wants to have people look on them as though they're lesser grades of human being because of things they have done? And it gets complicated when you know that the intent behind the actions, the words and deeds of the person in the past were good intentions, were well-intentioned. They were, they were not malicious, evil, and horrible. They were trying to help. But the unfortunate truth and reality of our world is that some of the worst harm that is done on this planet to each uh, that we do to each other is done out of the best of intentions. Um, and we see this in cults all over the place, right? Uh, is, is, is lots and lots of people can get deceptively recruited into a belief set, mindset, worldview, where they start believing that abuse is necessary, that harming people or doing things that ultimately result in harm to people, they don't see it that way. They're looking at it through a whole different lens. And when I was a Scientologist, I was looking at it through a whole different lens. It was so different that I actually have now, 10 years out, I have a hard time remembering just how deep that mindset went and what it was actually like to be in it. It's been a while now, and I've come a long way, and I put a lot of water under the bridge since I left Scientology, and and it's hard for me to muster up that same level of, oh, yeah, what was this like? I can have, you know, I have memories of certain parts of it, but... You know, my memory is is chock-a-block full of, you know, things I don't remember, as all of us are. And so how do you even remember all the things you did and all the things you said? You can't. And I can't. I certainly can't. So I can only look at the highlight reel, right? I can only look at the, the, the bits and pieces that, that pop up to me. And I can be reminded of things by others when they come and talk to me or tell me about memories they have or times we had together that I've forgotten about, but they remember. That's happened all over the place, right? And after you live for, you know, multiple decades, 
get used to it. It's going to keep happening that way. Um, so, okay. So that's responsibility. And I, what I needed to look at in terms of my blame level with all of this was the, the very real fact that destructive cults produce victims who in turn become victimizers. And that's a fact, and it's almost a fact across the boards to one degree or another. Um, but we need to temper this with some reality too, of course. I, didn't, I was not somebody, for example, who got so into victimizing other people that I started beating on them. That, that never happened when I was in Scientology. Um, some people eagerly, you know, went for that and did that and, uh, have that as part of their history. But fortunately I never went that far. I engaged in all kinds of levels of verbal abuse, punishments, using punishment drive to try to get, you know, to incentivize people to work harder, work faster, get the job done, make it go right. Um, much gnashing of teeth, much rending of garments, right? Much, much anger, in other words, being, uh, you know, lashed out at other people over the years. And, um, and besides just the obvious blatant instances of that are all of the countless numbers of times where I used L. Ron Hubbard's methods and methodologies in a ultimately harmful way to people in their lives and their relationships. But I, I, you know, that wasn't done again with malice. It was done out of an intent to help. But that help, you know, gets twisted and betrayed when that help is being, you know, when you're funneling L. Ron Hubbard, you know, channeling his level or degree or idea of help, then it doesn't really, it's not really very helpful. Um, so how do you deal with that? How do you own that? How do you, how do you live with that? Right? How do I, how do I live with that? How do I deal with that? Well, like I said, I've given it a lot of thought over the years and given it a lot of uh, work in therapy and education. And what I can say is that I have to, I've, I've had to parse out and I've, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and, and, and I, you know, and I don't just mean sitting in a chair, you know, thinking, I mean, I've working, I guess I should say more than thinking, you know, you, you have to ask yourself, well, what, what was I responsible for and what was I not responsible for? Because that's the key question is, well, what, what aspects or parts of this or what deeds did I carry out that I was ordered to do that, uh, that were somebody else's idea that I was following through on or that I accepted and relayed and took on and did you know, I was more of a conduit or a channel or a messenger rather than the person who was coming up with these ideas. It doesn't make the act of hurting somebody else or abusing somebody else less of what it is. But what what is necessary for me in this equation is to recognize that I wasn't the originator of that. I didn't I didn't wake up one fine day and go, you know what? I want to go engage in credit card fraud. I want to go beat on some people. I can't wait to go torture this person. I can't wait to go bankrupt this person. I can't wait to go ruin this person's relationships and thereby ruin their lives. Not once did I ever think that way or want to do anything like that. So I'm not responsible for the intention to harm these people, to hurt them, to abuse them. That wasn't my intention ever. That's important. 
I am responsible for having carried out those deeds, though. And I got to own that. I have to acknowledge it. I have to you know, respond to it. I have to be able to respond to that. I have to say, yeah, that's right. I did that. I acknowledge that I did those things. And I also acknowledge in the very same breath how wrong they were. Um, I own it. It's mine. I, I did those things. They were bad. I acknowledge they were bad. I fully recognize they were bad. They're so... I've gone so far to acknowledge that, that I've, you know, got educated on it, learned, grown, progressed. And, and now, being who I am and what I'm trying to do, and so many other ex-Scientologists join me in this effort, that here I am, you know, trying to talk about it and trying to share these experiences and ideas with you guys so that I can help other people to understand, to grow, to uh, from my experience, to see how bad well-intentioned actions can become and how we always have to, have to think about the consequences of our actions, the unintended consequences of our actions. This is where that comes from for me, is it doesn't come out of some, you know, uh, ivory tower understanding of of critical thinking it comes from a very raw emotional place of holy shit i really wish i had thought through and understood all the ramifications and consequences of my actions and all i can you know so then you come to a recognition that well you didn't do it then you were in a circumstance and situation where i wasn't sorry i keep saying you i was in a circumstance or situation where I was incapable of thinking these things through or desiring to or even feeling the need to. There was no question that what I was doing was the right thing as far as I was concerned. That was a dead certainty that it was that way and that I was in the right for what I was doing, even though sometimes it rubbed me the wrong way or I thought, Man, I don't know about this, but, it, you know, no, this is what to do, and this is what it says, and this is how you're going to be, and you're a Sea Org member, and blah, 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 blah. And so you move forward and do the awful thing. So now, looking back on it, how do I deal with it? Well, I, again, I take ownership for it. I acknowledge that it was wrong. I own my part in it. I reject that I am 100% responsible and the only one who is to blame for that? I can see very clearly that L. Ron Hubbard has responsibility in this. My seniors had responsibility in this. Every other person I was, you know, in charge of or had anything to do with there was responsible for it to a degree, which is in no way, shape, or form the degree of victim blaming, but to a degree, the people I was abusing have their share of responsibility for it as Scientologists themselves putting themselves in that position. But that's for them to sort out. But I just, I'm just saying, in the, in, from my point of view, from the bigger picture of looking out and, okay, well, how do we distribute responsibility here? And how do we you know, distribute blame here, right? I definitely own my part in it. It's bad, it was wrong, and there's nothing about it that was right. Um, I, you know, but I'm not the one who put them in that room with me or put them on the phone. You know what I mean? Like there's other things going on there with, with other people. 
Um, again, not, not an, you know, it's victim blaming when you're doing, you're saying that or trying to bring that up as though it's going to escape, you know, lessen your culpability or responsibility or, well, I'm, I'm not really to blame because really it was on them. And please, I hope I'm being clear that that's not what I'm trying to do there. I'm trying to talk about this understanding and recognition of, oh, this is how responsibility works. We're all kind of in this thing together. And we all have something to do with that, you know, and there's a there's coming to a place where for myself, I had to recognize my own responsibility over the years for even being there, for being part of it, for falling for the bullshit in the first place, letting myself get fooled and deceived, believing the easy to believe lies, even though I was raised with it. You know, even then I can like look at it and go, well, yeah, but I can see where I kind of you know, contributed my part in this too. So I, so I want to own all of that. And I, and I, I really hope I'm making it clear that I'm, that I'm trying to. Um, so then in terms of my ability, you know, how do I deal with it or move on from it? It's doing this, it's doing what I'm doing. And, and I said quite a while ago that I really did feel quite a while ago that I had um, done enough work, done enough help, helped enough people out of Scientology, which I have done, and other groups and cults and abusive situations as well, like with my own two hands and my own words and everything, really just helping them out. You know, how, how many do I have to do or save or assist or educate or inform or whatever you know, before the scales balance out. Well, for me, they balanced out quite some time ago. But I continue this crusade and this and this work that I do because it's the right thing to do. It's the responsible thing to do. And it's uh, it's the thing that I really can't imagine myself doing uh, other things. So this is the most important thing I can think of to be doing with my life. So all, for all of those reasons, I continue this work, but not from a place of guilt now, but from a place of pride and honor and and you know, real, real pride in my work. So anyway, I'm um, probably babbling a little bit here in this answer. It's going on for a while. So I'll wrap it up by just saying that those are a lot of the kind of thoughts whirling around in my head about answering this question now. Um, But it's, you know, it's a very necessary, uh, difficult thing for cult members to have to deal with or look at ex-cult members, right? Is Oh, damn, what did I do? What did I not do, et cetera? And and I encourage everybody who's in the same boat I'm in uh, to do that work and take a good hard look at it and do the uh, education and in, in, you know, introspection and uh, real work in the real world, not just in your head to deal with that and bring yourself to a place where you like yourself again, you're comfortable with yourself again, and you're not doubting your own intentions or, or desires or goals or ideals anymore. Because I'll tell you, coming out of a cult and looking at all the screwy stuff that you did in the name of trying to help people, you start really like, oh man, I really got to look at my value set and my morals and what am I doing and what's right and wrong. I mean, you know, there's a lot to look at on all of this, but I hope this gives a little window, more window, a little bit more info on at least the work I've been doing on it for myself and how I've approached it. And there you go. Toph, 
While we are aware of Shelley Miscavige's supposed whereabouts at CST, I am curious if there has been any information relating to the location of myriad other notable Scientology management figures. We know these people have been run through the hole, degraded by Miscavige, and removed from post over time. While Heber Gensch is still living like a prisoner at gold, where are Norman Starkey, Guillaume Lassave, Mark Yeager, Ray Midoff? While some appear every few years to do smear videos, others have just fallen off the face of the earth. Are they all stuck at gold? Are they digging ditches or washing dishes all day? There's no reference to any of these people on the official website. Does nobody within the Scientology membership even actually ask or even wonder where these people are? Well, Toph, I wish it was uh, easier here to answer your question, but the fact is that, that nobody knows. I mean, that's the problem, is uh, we imagine, we can, you know, sort of assume that the people you named out here, and the, name, the people you named are old-school Scientology executives and senior management staff. These are the original OG, you know, bigwigs in Scientology back in the late 70s and through the 80s until Miscavige really took over, and um, then all these people became sort of sycophants and subservient to him. And, um, you know, 10, 15 years later, nobody knows where any of them are. Um, we know that last eyewitness accounts of these folks are that they were in the hole, and that's all we know. Every one of the people you listed in your question could be dead now, and none of us would know uh, unless somebody knows how to do you know, death certificate searches or something. I don't know. Um, I, you know, I, I, but that's the, I, I think what I'm trying to say is I'm not saying that they are all dead. I'm saying they could be for all we know. Gold base is a lockdown place that, that they won't admit the public to. And um, so who knows, right? As far as we can tell, they're at the gold base, but we haven't had anybody come out of the gold base anytime recently to confirm anything about that, about what's going on there. So at least not coming to me, maybe they're going to other people in the ex-Scientology world, but I'm not hearing about it. So all I can really say is, um, is we don't know if they are still there. They're probably working on little projects or ethics programs, doing similar stuff to what was done at the hole. I doubt they're digging ditches all day. These are very old men uh, you're referring to here, and they have definitely well past their prime and are probably... Um, well, you know, the harsh truth is that they are probably dying off and uh, and it maybe we'll hear about them and maybe we won't. And that's just one more added feature of, uh, you know, being in a destructive cult is, uh, is you disappear. Dwayne Davies, in an old 1950s lecture on Scientology, I am unsure what it is called, Hubbard goes on and on about how engrams are stored on the cellular level and replicated when cells divide. Let's assume for a moment that this is true. Obviously, it is not. Would this not suggest that if one received a blood transfusion or an organ transplant, that one would receive the engrams stored in the transplanted cells? Might the blood slash organs contain some of the body thetans that were allegedly stuck to the body? This is largely academic and probably a little silly. However, I am curious. 
Yeah, funny question. Um, so first off, Hubbard himself dumped this idea very, very quickly after he put it forward in Dianetics and Science of Survival and was sort of poking around with, you know, well, we don't really understand structure. We don't really know what the structural components of all of this are, he kept saying in his writings. But, you know, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Maybe the cells are, you know, recording the engrams at the cellular level. And for a while, he had a whole... He was going on a whole tear about all of this. Um, this also fed into uh, the protoplasm line of evolution and how that could itself, the, you know, the, the, the sort of life memories that would extend back in time to the Pleistocene and caveman and all that. Uh, this is the history of man material. This is stuff that's covered in the book, History of Man, and the lectures that were given around the time that that book was published, which was early 19. Early to mid-1952. So um, early, early stuff. And Hubbard kind of dumped it and moved on when he adopted his whole Thetan theory and really went to town on Theta, right? The whole Theta mess theory thing where he said Theta, this life force, this spiritual quantity or life energy is actually what's driving things. And uh, what resulted from that was an evolution into uh, mental image pictures, the pictures that you can see or, or that make up your mind are composed of sheets of energy and the, and the Thetan is mocking them up or creating them by rethinking about or remembering the, the incident or time. And then whoop, up comes this, you know, sheet of energy, which can impinge on the body and, and have an effect on the body, and that's where the engrams are actually coming from. So, so it didn't take long for Hubbard to totally dump this whole concept of cellular um, engram storage. And uh, the reason, of course, that he did so is exactly for the question you're asking here and similar questions that undoubtedly he was asked in person back in 1951 and 52 when he was forwarding this nonsense. And people were like, well, wait a minute, what about... Does that mean da da da? Because you you know what we're not necessarily privy to are all the talk, talk conversations that he had off mic around that time. But we know that there were many that there were people who were very enthusiastic about Dianetics and Scientology and had all kinds of ideas to share. And it was a and at the time it was a more contributory spirit to putting Dianetics and Scientology together. Hubbard was more open to ideas, in other words, and was into ripping them off from people quite readily, but he was more open to hearing and taking in ideas and using it to help develop his. So um, so this is, I think, a prime example of one of those times. I mean, I could address your question as far as, well, would that mean that, you know, if you were going to go to a blood transfusion or whatever, that, you know, these engrams are going to go from one person to another. And sure enough, of course, that's what that would uh, imply if that's how engrams were stored. And it doesn't even make a whole lot of sense that an engram with the attendant voice recognition, you know, the vocal um, memory as well as the physical memory, the traumatic memory, would all be stored in a single cell. I mean, how would that even work? Are we modifying DNA now? Like, what are we doing? Or is this somehow uh, imparted through some chemical sequence that's stored in the nucleus? Or what, like, what are we talking about? Well, Hubbard quickly, I'm sure, tired of such questions because he didn't have any answers. Hubbard didn't know the first damn thing about cytology or cellular life or biology or any of this. He had a passing notion of some of the language, used it and sprinkled it throughout his work, and like every other pseudoscientific bullshit artist, 
uh, got away with it because the people he was spreading these words around to, for the most part, didn't think too much about it. But when they did and challenged him, he knew he had to rework the idea because it wasn't going to, you know, here were people going, I'm not so sure I'm buying this, Ron. Now, know that that really works out. Let me ask you a few questions. And he might try to, you know, ruin that person or get in that person's face and tell him to shut the fuck up. Uh, pardon my French. But um, but then he would go back to his room and go, okay, well, let's see. What's a new what's a new theory I can put forward about this? Oh, I know. Theta. You know, and off he goes with some new tan down some new tangent. And the, the you know, the wonderful thing about being a pseudoscientist rather than being a real scientist, is you can just make up whatever facts you want and you write them down and you say it's science and you run with it. And that's what L. Ron Hubbard would do. So uh, sorry, Dwayne, I'm not, you know, like like taking up all the intricacies of your question, but I, I thought it would be a great opportunity instead to discuss, you know, the pseudoscientific nature of Scientology and how Hubbard would just make things up whenever he wanted to. And this was, and changed the story, completely flipped the script on people uh, in, in the world of Dianetics and Scientology. He did it all the time. There were many, many places where this happened. Uh, and the whole path would go here, and then that wasn't really going anywhere, so then it would go over here, and that wasn't really going anywhere, and then it would go over here. I mean, for example, in the 50s, Hubbard went from engrams and you're not responsible for your condition and you have been victimized your entire existence by these mental image pictures stored in your reactive mind and you're a victim and we're going to sort all that out and fix all that and then he flipped the script in 1951 and 52 on responsibility and said oh no 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 you're actually the one who's responsible for all of this as a spiritual entity uh, but that wasn't super popular, so we kind of let that slide and then went on to exteriorization. That's what we got to do. We got to exteriorize everybody. And he spent a couple of years working on that nonsense before that really wasn't panning out very well. And then it was all about communication and life is a game and games are to be played and games consist of freedoms and barriers and purposes and let's have games. And Thetans are really just all about playing games and we're going to break life down as a game. And this went on for a year. And then it was over to, you know, responsibility again. And by 1960, when his hut, when his son took off and other people left and things were kind of going to hell, he was like, oh, it's over. It's, it's withholds. It's your responsibility again. And he brought all that back up. But this time he brought security checking with it. And so you see, this is just a, just a passing description of the 1950s development of Scientology as Hubbard bopped from one thing to another to another, each of them almost not fully contradicting the last path he was on, but kind of pretending it didn't exist. And now we're going to go with this new thing. Right. And as, as Miscavige has correctly pointed out and inadvertently uh, when he was giving a briefing years ago uh, to the public at one of the events, he was giving a speech and he talked about how you have to continually, you know, every businessman knows that in order to keep your company expanding and growing, you have to keep introducing new product. And that's what Hubbard was really good at with his own subjects. So uh, as as I think I've described here. So there you go. John O'Nolan, could you please speak a little in depth on Heber Gentsch? I know he was the president of the church many years ago, and from what I've seen on YouTube, he gave the church credibility. Was he a threat to David Miscavige? How was he viewed in the Scientology community? I also know at a later age, he was sent to the RPF or the whole, 
And I find that horrifying, someone of his age getting sent there when he gave his life to the church. Okay, thank you for this. Um, so I'm not a Heber Gentsch expert, but I can fill in a few blanks for you. Heber Gentsch was born into a Mormon family in Utah and was raised as a Mormon. He, yes, he was in a one. He went from one destructive cult to another. That is what happened. Um, he was a singer. He was an entertainer. He was actually um, employed as a lounge singer in Las Vegas in his pre-Scientology days. And he was, a, you know, he was a little go-getter as far as that goes. And he was, I say little go-getter, even though he's a big guy. Uh, I had, did meet him when I was in. I didn't meet him and interact with him in any real significant way, but I would see him speaking and at, at events and, and rallies and things like that. And he was a powerful speaker. He had that, he, he went from that whole Mormon culture to the entertainment culture to Scientology. And apparently, um, you know, uh, if I'm remembering right, so I might be wrong on this one, but I believe that there was abuse in his childhood and, um, and he, you know, wanted to get away from that. So then Scientology, somehow he hooked up with that, I think, in the late 60s or early 70s and got on board and became a, uh, a church spokesperson or working for the, off for the guardian's officer. And then that, was the, that became the office of special affairs. So somewhere in there, he became like the spokesperson for Scientology. He didn't have a problem being on a microphone. He had a powerful, booming voice. And he really got into the whole ministerial, religious angle of this. And he was into, you know, he would walk around in suits and stuff and, and kind of put himself out there um, positioning or, or look and feel-wise an awful lot like a Jerry Falwell or uh, um, Pat Robertson type person. You know, I'm a religious figure and I represent this religious community and we have the side, we are on the side of right and you guys are, are questioning us or how dare you, you know, dare to question us and our integrity and what we're doing. We're a church and we'll have you know we do charitable things. And, you know, this was kind of his attitude. He was, he could be really in your face when he wanted to be, but he could also dial it way down and come across incredibly, incredibly compassionately. But some of the stuff that would come out of his mouth was just batshit crazy. But he was really, really good at using that to deflect the difficult questions. Somebody would ask him about some abuses. I remember the 60 Minutes uh, interview that he, or, or uh, expose that was done in the 1980s on the Church of Scientology, and they interviewed him. They had him on camera, and he uh, went on a mad tear in response to one question about some, some Scientology abuses by going on a tear about the Nazis and the Holocaust and the concentration camps and just totally deflected not even in a good way, really, but, you know, for that time and that place and how people acted, he, he did a pro job. He was good. He was good on the fly uh, at that kind of thing. And he was the go-to guy when it came to media representation for Scientology. He did radio, he did TV, you know, any kind of media that Scientology was uh, needing, he would be the one who got trotted out. And that was his primary role until I guess he just got too old for it or made some mistakes. I know Miscavige really got on him, uh, very, very much berated and abused him, did not think that he was doing a good job, um, would constantly keep him on his toes, constantly denigrate him in front of other people. 
And uh, that just got worse and worse and worse as the years went on. Um, you know, Heber was a pretty gross Scientology church apologist. The things that came out of his mouth over the years were quite disgusting. And he very loudly and very proudly represented Scientology during all that time. And then, yes, uh, the tragedy of Heber Gentsch's story is that it turned on him, specifically Miscavige turned on him, and the church, of course, complied, and he ended up in the hole. And at this point, I, you know, who knows if he's even still alive? It is not known. Heber Gentsch was, to answer some of your other questions here, Jono, as far as how he was viewed in the Scientology community, Heber Gentsch was adored by Scientologists. They loved him. My parents knew him. You know, I was aware of him. I mean, he was just a guy that everybody looked up to. When Heber was coming to town, when Heber was going to do some speaking, when Heber was going to do a presentation or something, that was something you wanted to be part of. You wanted to be at that because Heber was just going to bring it. And you never knew what he was going to bring, but you knew he was going to bring it. He was going to bring something powerful. Uh, he was a very, very good public speaker. So, um, so you asked me to, you know, elaborate on what I know about Heber Gentsch, and those are the things I actually know. Those are the things I saw or experienced or heard myself. Uh, was he ever a threat to David Miscavige? No, he was never a threat to David Miscavige. Miscavige was never, ever uh, threatened by him, any more than Miscavige was threatened by any other Scientology OG executive or spokesperson uh, you know, Miscavige thought they were all scumbags because they were never getting the job done as far as he was concerned. But um, but that's par for the course for a, you know, malignant narcissist like him. So there you go. Steve Wood. Can a Scientologist be an alcoholic or a drug addict? And if so, how does Scientology deal with addiction and alcoholism? Hey, Steve, I'm going to give you a real short and to the point answer on this one because because um, the awful truth is that it is pretty short and brutal what Scientology does to deal with addiction and alcoholism. Uh, of course, there are Scientologists who are alcoholics and who are drug addicts or have been in the past or, you know, relapse back into that. Uh, and there's a lot of hidden alcoholics, by the way, in Scientology, because you can get away if you can become, you know, be a functioning alcoholic. Uh, well, I happen to have, um, you know, experience with that. Uh, not myself, but I've seen uh, very closely, close up and personal people who are um, in that condition. So what does Scientology have for them? <laughs> not much. It has a purification rundown, which they all stupidly believe will detoxify their body of all these drug toxins and chemicals, and that's somehow supposed to take away uh, the urges, physical demand, and need of your body to uh, partake in these substances. And then they follow that up with um, TRs, uh, all of the TRs, uh, 0 to 4 and 6 through 9. So you do the communication drills and you do the control or the upper indoctrination drills. We've broken all those down before on my channel many times, so I'm not going to get into that again. Uh, and, but that's part of the drug handling in Scientology. And then you get auditing, various kinds of auditing, to address um, why it is that you feel the need to be taking these substances in the first place. What problems are you trying to solve in your life? What needs are you trying to fulfill? And um, there are different levels of this in Scientology, uh, from the lowest level, which is called the Scientology Drug Rundown, then there is the New Era Dianetics drug rundown, and then there is the OT drug rundown. So you have three levels of drug handlings that are going to get done on somebody 
uh, as they move up the bridge. And these are pretty standard actions for everybody moving up the bridge. But with a drug addict or a recovering addict, you're going to get more intensive, uh, you know, attention on those drug issues as your first order of business. And you're going to get auditing related to that once you've gotten off of the drugs physically. So that's basically the rundown on how that's handled in Scientology. All right, let's do some flash answers. Shimoda Tawa, do you play or have you ever played a musical instrument? Nope, not at all. I suck at music. I have um, tried uh, to learn uh, music. I understand uh, enough of, you know, how the scales work and the, and the tones and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I cannot play anything. Um, I just, yeah, just kind of one of those dreams that's going to go unrealized for me. Jonathan Perry, what was the first thing you did for fun once you were emancipated from the Sea Organization? I rented a car and I drove north uh, from Los Angeles to Sacramento to see and stay with my mom uh, once I landed out of the Sea Org. And that drive was something that I was doing for fun. I needed the space and the energy and the, you know, the, the kind of speed of the to, to match the excitement that I was feeling and finally getting out of there. Uh, so that was the very, very first thing I did was I, I took that money they gave me and I cashed the check and I rented a car and I got the hell out of there and I uh, never looked back. All right, folks, that's our show for this week. Thanks for sticking through with me here and, uh, and listening to what I had to say. I hope my answers were informative, educational, and entertaining. And I hope you'll consider supporting the channel and supporting the show. And, of course, if you need any assistance out there, uh, questions you have, um, consulting that you need, you know, you're in a situation of coercive control or your friend or a loved one is, and you don't know what to do about that, you can always contact me. And uh, I can help with that. All right. I will, uh, you know, and that's, that's something I do professionally. Okay. So that being put out there, I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.